But the career that you undertake and the career that you choose and probably in three, four or five years doesn't even exist yet. We don't train you to know what's going on right now. We train you for what your world is going to be and preparing you with all of those tools. Hi everyone, I'm Becky. And I'm Rohan. And welcome to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors and leaders outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories about how they got to where they are today. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of After Office Hours. Today we have with us Dr. Cameron Kim. Yeah, Dr. Kim is a lecturer in the BME department, as well as a Duke alum. He went here for his undergrad. Yes, he did his PhD at Stanford University after that, and has now come back to teach undergrad students here at Duke. Yeah, you know, Dr. Kim is passionate about research and teaching. Uh, he mentions that it's really cool for him to be able to take the role of professors that taught him when he was an undergrad here and just become their colleagues and really push the boundaries of um, what it means to sort of teach BME students, but he's also sort of helping out with a number of different like research initiatives on campus, including the iGym team. Yeah, for sure. It's super clear through our conversation, as you'll hear that Dr. Kim is very passionate about what he does. He cares about teaching his students. He cares about impacting his community. And I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Yeah, I hope you enjoy. Dr. Kim, thank you so much for coming and speaking with us uh, on the podcast. I want to jump right into things, and I want to ask a question we haven't really been able to ask any of our other guests. Uh, I see that you've been a semi-professional curler. When did you get into that, and can you tell me a little more about that? Uh, thanks for having me, Becky and Rowan. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, the the I forget what I write for the bios whenever they ask, like, tell us something about yourself. So I, you know, the semi-competitive curling athlete. Uh, so how did I get involved with that? So I just became really excited about curling at the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. You watch it on TV, you see these people yelling with these brooms, you have no idea what's going on. Um, and I grew up in Florida, so it wasn't really the home of curling. I mean, I guess we did win a Stanley Cup. I guess we have some, you know, ice sports doing well for us in the in Tampa Bay. That gives me a Jamaican bobsled team vibe. <laughs> well, I actually learned, so, I mean, people think of curling as a very Canadian sport. It's also very big in a lot of the Scandinavian countries, Norway and Sweden. And uh, it's also got a really big Japanese following. So, uh, but I learned to curl actually while I was an undergraduate student at this little school called Duke University. Um, and the curling club, uh, it's called the Triangle Curling Club. Shout out to them. They are, uh, they were based in Raleigh back when I was an undergrad. Uh, I guess I went to that Learn to Curl clinic in 2012. That was right after the London Olympics. And I just had an Olympic fever. I was in London for a study abroad. And I was like, I, I have to do curling. I have to have my chance at the Olympic dream. <laughs> so I figured at 20 years old, it was going to be curling in the U.S. And so I went to the curling club. Uh, just at one of the hockey rinks over in Raleigh. I had the most amazing time in the world. Uh, got a chance to do it a couple of times while I was here for undergrad, but I spent most of my, uh, I guess my semi-competitive professional career, whatever you want to call it, uh, when I was in grad school at, over in California at Stanford. And I was a part of the uh, San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club and the Silicon Valley Curling Club. Uh, and I, it was my activity to keep myself you know, I, I guess focus, but also just keep myself 
level-headed and needing an outlet to sort of, you know, de-stress after, you know, busy days in the lab and experiments. So little did I know that my curling career was going to take me to nationals and competing at national tournaments. Uh, uh, I've been to Canada for fun tournaments. I've been to, I've been to Norway for some fun tournaments. I know some folks over there and it's been a very uh, interesting ride to have curling been such a formative part of my sort of grad school career to compete at some of the highest levels, especially for like an amateur level curler. Uh, I have a, my name is on a trophy for a national championship. It's those kinds of weird things that you, you never really expect, but they kind of happen. I try to take every opportunity that possibly comes at me and just go for it. Do, do you still uh, do curling a lot or is time sort of more crunch now? Well, unfortunately, the curling club here is closed due to due to the COVID concerns. Uh, so I haven't actually been able to uh, but it, it's my home club. I guess that's where I learned to curl initially at this point now, eight years ago. So I'm actually, I'm really hoping for when the club can reopen safely and I will be there, you know, I'll be there as often as I possibly can. I mean, I still have aspirations of competing at the highest levels that I possibly can. I don't think I'm going to be getting an Olympic medal anytime soon, but I think that there are some hopes for, a, you know, nationals, more national tournaments and, you know, try to get myself onto that podium. I think that that's, I find, I, I've learned a lot actually as an athlete, and it's weird because I was not the best athlete growing up. Uh, my sister was the athlete in the family. She played college uh, soccer. I was not that. And uh, it's interesting because I really have learned a lot from sports psychology and sort of, you know, training and coaching about how do you work with your failures and your successes in sport and I've actually tried to bring that into the classroom a little bit and really think about how do we embrace failure uh, in the classroom when you have a, maybe a bad problem set or the project and your team work doesn't always work the way you want for it to. I think there's a lot of lessons to be had from other, you know, other disciplines and sport is no exception. So I've really been fortunate to have these experiences and to also know some professional curlers that can also share with me some of their, you know, sports psychology training. And I think that there's... You know, we are Duke. We are the school of Duke basketball, right? And I think that those lessons about those five players on the court and, you know, Coach K leading the charge, I think that should also be a part of the, you know, classroom experience. Yeah, I, I love that mindset. I'm uh, an athlete on the track and field team here, so I, I relate to your your comparisons. I, I'm very curious, what does training look like for a curler? Other than like, actually curling, curling, what other types of things do you guys do? So, uh, and unfortunately, since I haven't been curling for, at this point, it's been a year since I've been on the ice. It's, it's really crazy to think that it's been that long since I've been on the ice. But uh, there is a lot of, I think people tend to think of curling as this, like, I don't want to call it a lazy sport. I don't know what people think of it. They think, they watch it on TV and they think, oh, I can push a rock on the ice. I can get it down right, there. Right. <laughs> uh it's not that. I mean, trust me, the first time anyone ever does it, they fall flat on their face, you know, 10 times over because it's a, your body is engaged in a different way. So it's, uh, there's a lot of physical training that goes involved. The top athletes at the sport are, you know, training in the gym every day. There's a lot of core strength. There's a lot of um, upper body strength. There's a lot of lower body. It's a really a full body workout. Uh, that sweeping, it kind of looks, maybe it looks silly. Like why are they brushing the ice in front of the rock? But that's a very... Uh, cardio intensive sport and one of the uh, top athletes in Canada 
uh, Joanne Courtney, she, I love the way that she explained it one time. She said that sweeping is like doing a plank on ice for 30 seconds while sliding down 100 feet. Uh, And I can barely do a plank on my floor here for five seconds, let alone, you know, that mentality behind it to be an effective uh, brusher. So I, I think that that's a really key part about it. There's also strategy. They call it chess on ice. So there's this idea you have to watch games and learn what is the other team going to do two shots from now? And how am I going to defend against that? Or how am I going to, when's my moment to attack? I, I think that that, uh, and I was never really a chess player, but I could see, I see it now. I totally get it of like, I know that team. That team likes to throw those kinds of shots. I'm going to do this to stop them from getting that opportunity or to make their shot even harder. So there's a lot of that sort of uh, mental training, I think, along with the physical training, but it's a muscle memory sport. So really, I think the most the most effective training is throwing rocks. You know, you typically go to the curling club. A lot of those pros, they go to the curling club at six o'clock in the morning before anybody else is out there. Ice is fresh. They throw rocks, 50 rocks in the morning, maybe 50 rocks in the afternoon, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it you know probably takes about a minute to throw each rock and see what happens with it. So, you know, it's a solid hour of just kind of throwing rocks and getting into your headspace and, and finding that comfort zone. Uh, it's reps. It's really all about reps for the sport, especially. Well, I really want to try curling <laughs> one time now. And I hope that you can get back on the ice soon once this situation gets over. I, I hope so, too. Yeah, for sure. And jumping to a question that probably you were expecting, <laughs> you're expecting more than the curling question. So, you know, since we saw that you majored in math and BME at Duke, what got you interested in engineering? And also, you know, it's not that common for someone to major in math and BME. I mean, they sound, they're two really hard majors. So what was that like? And what got you interested in both of those areas? Yeah, so I, um, my exposure to biomedical engineering was uh, thanks to a 10th grade uh, English paper, uh, which again, most people don't usually, I think engineers, we are always afraid of English classes. So um, shout out to my uh, 10th grade uh, high school English teacher, Cheryl Johnston. Um, so I was about stem cell engineering and using stem cells to treat different diseases. So I actually, uh, I don't know, that got me really interested in thinking about how do we use biology to help people? I, I think there was, you know, you spend biology classes in high school and even your early intro 201s trying to just figure out like what biology even is. Um, but I was really interested in how to make biology work for us. So that got me into the BME side of the world. Um, the math part, is, I, it's not really a, a joke. I guess I was just a math nerd in, call, in, in high school. I just really liked math. I was doing math competitions. I was uh, writing math tests for different things. I just liked math. And I just really wanted to keep doing it. So I felt like I'm going to get a math major as well. And there were definitely some times where I'm kind of sitting in CMOS, uh, writing this, you know, two page long proof that I, 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 <laughs> I definitely like applied math things more. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I think it's where the engineering really comes in is that I liked differential equations. I like statistics. I like, you know, that kind of modeling. And then I would be in a you know abstract algebra class trying to be like, what is a number again? And I... Uh, it's funny because the it's a joke that the engineers 
worst nightmare is the proof. It, well, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I had a lot of those proof classes, even in like, you know, differential equations where it's like, okay, we're going to put this into math lab or maybe into Mathematica and see what it is. And then I'd have my math, my differential equations class where it was proved that you can even do this. And it's like, oh boy, this is not what I signed up for. But I, I really enjoyed it. I actually was very, I, I think it in some regard it made me better uh, at really thinking about engineering problems because I had, I had a, a slightly bigger toolbox of, you know, relationships to work with in, you know, thinking about biological systems with, with math and, and taking some of those courses. So I, I actually really enjoyed it, uh, except for a couple of those classes that, you know, were mostly all proofs that I, I wasn't the, the biggest fan of, but, uh, you know, it was a, it was a lot. Uh, I, I definitely tell folks, you know, be ready for it. But if you like math and you like being me, I mean, part of your undergraduation should be doing what excites you. And, and for me, at that moment, it was uh, biomedical engineering and math. And then a couple of semesters along the way, I also, now it doesn't exist anymore, but I had I also have a certificate from the Genome Sciences and Policy, which is now the Science and Society Certificate, I believe. And so that is also something that I, I, I did as well. So I, there were a lot of things. Uh, I'm surprised that I still had some free time to, to do other things while at Duke. Uh, but I but I really, I, I had to kind of, you know, take, I tried to take my college experience as just as far as I possibly could. Uh, I My parents didn't go to college. I'm a first-generation college student. And, you know, they didn't really, they, they couldn't have told me, now slow down there, kid. Probably two majors and a certificate might be too much. So whether it was, uh, you know, ignorance to some extent, I just said, I'll do it. Why not? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like you had your hands completely full on the academic side. One question I want to start asking people more often is like, did you go to classes in undergrad? Was that something you did like religiously? I know people are, some people are big lecture attenders and others like show up for the tests. Where do you fall on that spectrum? I would go to, I would go to every, the, well, there were a couple of exceptions and it's mostly those 830 classes. Um, I definitely, there were some 830s that I unfortunately, uh, you know, I didn't fully make it out of bed. And I'm somebody that really, uh, I'm somebody that really likes to be ready and in the moment. So I would need a shower. I would need to like do <laughs> do my hair and wear real clothes to go to lecture. Um, I mean, and I'm now my lectures that I teach now are eight thirty. So I I kind of I you know and I you know sometimes the attendance numbers for you know and it's a Zoom lecture. So you know sometimes the attendance numbers are a little bit low. Um, and, and I, I try to really ask, like, you know, is it something that I can change to make it better? But I also, I've been there for the day 30 of being like, well, yeah, maybe not. I mean, this is also like last semester, first semester, kind of overzealous, being really excited about, you know, being back at Duke. And I would, you know, wake up, and I, you know, get the shower in and, you know, put on the nice shirt and all that kind of stuff. I will definitely say that my... uh there may or may not be a couple of lectures where the sweatpants stayed on for this <laughs> this semester because I realized well from the as long as I'm wearing a good shirt I think I'll I'll be okay on, on the Zoom but 
So I understand. I, I un- you you're not the only one doing that this, this semester. <laughs> I, I definitely have learned that. And, and I think the other thing, but I, I would go to my classes. I, again, similarly speaking, I would like my parents never really, my sister, my sister and I were the first ones to go to college. So we, I mean, I just, I thought you had to. And, and, you know, and for my students that are listening, you definitely have to as well. Always be there. Always be present. <laughs> for sure. Um, speaking of your undergrad experience, were there any professors that you remember specifically that really, really changed your experience or uh, if you had any favorite professors during your time here? D- definitely. Well, and that's kind of the interesting part about coming back as a faculty member in a department where you were. I mean, it'd be one thing if I was a BME major and I joined the biology department or, you know, a different department. Um, I am now, I mean, I am now colleagues, you know, these are my, these are now my peers. These, you know, are the same people that taught me uh, not that long ago. And uh, they don't like to, they don't like to think about that because it makes them feel a little bit more, uh, more experienced. You know, that's they've had some more years of experience under their belt since me being, you know, one of their students. But I really, um, you know, so I mean, that's been the best part is actually learning from them and speaking with them about what they went through when they first started teaching here at Duke and in BME. So Dr. Buchholz, for example, I mean, she taught my two seventy one. And, uh, you know, it's really, I really enjoyed that class. And even though I'm definitely a very wet lab bio person, I really, I mean, I have a math, I, had a, I have a math background. Signaling Systems definitely has that math, you know, feeling behind it, right? So I, yeah, so I really just, uh, you know, that was a really great thing. Uh, you know, there, there were some projects that we did with that course and, and just that the environment that, uh, that to be holds fostered in that classroom were really great. Uh, Dr. Wallace uh, for uh, 307 was another class that I remember very well uh, in terms of just, uh, and especially for such a very advanced course like uh, fluid dynamics and mass transport. Uh, uh, but Dr. Wallace just taught it in such a way that really engaged the entire classroom. And I, I really found that very, uh, you know, different, especially as a junior, I didn't have that same environment in their classes as a, you know, sophomore or as a first year student. But then it also comes into my research experiences. Uh, Dr. Gersbach has been my, was my research advisor for uh, three, basically three years. I was one of his Pratt Fellow um, students and uh, having had him for a couple of different classes, I got to really see where his, you know, ideas, his innovation, his creativity comes in and how he has, you know, crafted his research lab and crafted his research groups. I've really enjoyed all of those experiences with these, you know, different faculty. And now it's kind of, it is weird. You know, I, I still have to kind of, I, I, I think with Dr. With Dr. Gersbeck, I mean, I kind of got used to calling him by his first name because I had been in his lab for a while and he would tell me, you could call me <laughs> Charlie, it's okay. Um, but it's funny, I kind of keep myself, you know, when I'm like, even on like kind of a meeting with folks, I have to stop myself from like, you know, saying, well, you, Dr. Buchholz, you know, Dr. Satterback, like, you know, <laughs> we're technically kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're peers, but that's been an interesting part. That's been kind of the funniest, you know, part about it is it wasn't that long ago and yet it does seem like a long time. That must be very interesting. And you must have like new realizations every day <laughs> working in the same place that you were a student. Before we dive into that more, we also saw that you represented Duke at the uh, Jeopardy College Championship. Um, I did. Can you tell us about that? I did, yeah. So that was uh, 2014. That was my senior year. And I, um, 
Yeah, I, it's uh, it's funny. I'm also working with the Duke iGEM team right now as the faculty advisor. And and I, it's funny, I, I you know, when I intro my first day of lecture, I, I have a little photo of me because, you know, people, I'm sure you've looked up your professors the day before being like, who the heck are they? Just the kind of thing. Yeah, so sure, unfortunately, sure. when you type in Cameron Kim Duke, the first or second thing that comes up is my face with uh, Alex Trebek, you know, and that's something that's a memory that I will always have, you know, may he rest in peace. I, it's so one of those things that I had dreamed about being, I just love game shows. I love competing. I like competitions. Um, I love trivia. I love doing just, again, weird things, this weird bank of knowledge that I have in my head. So College Jeopardy was the pinnacle. I mean, I, I think I, there was no other way to describe it. I mean, that was like the dream was I had to be on College Jeopardy. And I, I you know, there's an online test. You take the online test every year and you never get an email back or a phone call. And you say to yourself, well, there's always next year. And I remember taking the test my junior year. I was actually, it was funny enough, I was actually in a rehearsal for a play. And I told my director, I have to take a break at nine to do this online test. And I, I know that our time is precious, but I really need to do this. And so I went to the back room and I, it was like a 10 minute test. It's 50 questions and I'm just kind of like, this is, this is my chance. Like, this is the last chance that I've got. Not that there obviously aren't other ways to be on Jeopardy, but it was like, it had to be the college tournament. So, uh, yeah, I took the test, uh, got an email. I was in twenties, uh, eating lunch. I got the email, uh, got the email that said that you've been, you've passed the first round and you have an interview. I went to Nashville that uh, summer for the interview. And then, uh, like around November of my senior year, uh, like around Thanksgiving break, um, I got a phone call. I was walking to Wilson because I was in a fencing class for my PE credit. And I got a phone call from the Jeopardy producer that said, do you want to be on Jeopardy? And uh, it took everything in my power to not scream in like, you know, on Kville <laughs> quad. I mean, I, I was pretty darn close. I mean, I called my mom hyperventilating like, you know, what's what's happening kind of a thing. Um, and that was, I mean, it was just the most amazing experience. Uh, I mean, I was, there was another game show that I was on a couple of years ago. I'll let you all, I'll let the audience try and figure out which game show that was. The, uh, th that one didn't come out, that one didn't come up with as many successes as the Jeopardy did. But yeah, I just, I went to, it was my first time ever in California. It was, I mean, my first time ever on like TV and it's like the, one of the biggest stages you could possibly be on for trivia. I, I, it was, that's a, that's an hour. It was about, it was about 40 minutes of taping because the show is like 30 minutes and it, it's, you know, that, that's pretty much, it, it takes not, not that much longer to actually film an episode, but those are, you know, about 40 minutes that I will, you know, I will savor for the rest of my life. That's incredible. Do, are you like, do you just know a lot of fun facts? Are you like that guy or did you have to study a lot for this? Um, I think that I... Well, I definitely studied once you got the phone call, you know, and you got the email saying that you're going to be in the interview room. So it's kind of like, all right, maybe I should probably just remember all the capitals of the African <laughs> countries because it's always one of those, you know, you know, kind of the big ones. There's always some small countries. That you always just forget. So you have to kind of review those. And even with like the European countries, the Eastern Eastern European bloc sometimes gets all 
Bucharest and Budapest, they're, you know, they're very different, <laughs> but you have to make sure that you know that they're, why they're different. Um, so, I mean, there was some studying there, but I think overall, I definitely think of myself as kind of just like a sponge of knowledge. So I, you know, I'm involved in different little trivia things online, you know, watching a lot of, you know, game shows at this point now, YouTube's just got so many ways to just learn trivia. And I just really enjoy learning things. I think that's what really set me up, I think, very well to be, a, you know, on the education side was I just really enjoyed learning things. And I want to teach others how to learn. And I want to teach others new things. Like that, to me, is what, I, you know, getting the most out of these experiences. Can I quiz you on some uh, African capitals right now? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm scared. But, you know, give me a couple. We'll see what happens. If you, okay, I'll give you a couple. Hmm, okay, South Africa. <laughs> well, okay, well, that one's tough. Well, there's only three of them. Uh, so I, I always forget what the differences are. Johannesburg, Bloemfontein, and, oh gosh, the third one, is that, it's not Cape Town, is it? I'm already impressed. I'm already impressed. <laughs> um, I always forget the third one, because it's a matter of which one's the financial capital, which one's the legislative. I can never remember all of those, you know, I have to, I'll have to, I'll have to revise after we finish this, uh, finish this interview up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not to put you on the spot. Well, what was your like weakest area that you had to really put in the work of, of memorizing? Well, I can tell you when I was on the show, uh, I, I, I think the, it's always buys of water, rivers. I always forget where the rivers are. You know, there's a lot of them. I always forget, you know, I know the big ones, but then there's like the the secondary ones that you probably should know, like where they run through. Um, but I can tell you when I was on Jeopardy, the category that stumped me, um, which is not my most shining moment, I'm sure it's somewhere on YouTube as like, you know, Game Show Fails of 2014, was my ability to do rhyme time. Uh, I was not a poet. And so rhyme time was always one of those categories. You have to get two words and you have to, you know, you get the clue and it's like, well, I know what the two words are, but they don't rhyme, but they have to rhyme because that's what the category says. And I, that was definitely a, a strict category for me. Uh, literature, I, I there are some categories of English literature that I'm good at and others that I'm not good at. So, you know, that was a, also a bit of a weak point. So I there's this little trivia league that uh, operates on the Internet called Learned League. And I'm sure my stats, I can probably find my stats right now. Uh, I'm sure they're probably weakest in yeah my weakest uh, category according to this is uh film oh yeah i'm not good at movies i don't watch a lot of movies i watch mostly more tv shows that's so crazy there's so much area you have to cover that's like my mind is blown already well that's i think the hard part about it but it's film especially i mean you go all the way back to the charlie chaplin days and the, and the silent films and knowing all the i mean it's there's all those random things I'll be, i'm very happy to report though that my top categories in this my trivia league are math and science and food and drink as well makes sense math, <laughs> makes sense math science food and drink are my strong my top three categories which work well for all of my interests i think so you you mentioned that you know for Jeopardy, it was the first time in California, and it's interesting because you actually went there for grad school. And I'm curious, so you mentioned that you're sort of a wet lab person and you were a math major. When did you, was that a transition that you made at some point when you applied to graduate school? When did you realize that you were sort of, because that's not really common in my mind, right? For someone to really love math, but also to really love wet lab. Yeah, I am. Um... No, I ever since I and I really have to thank Dr. You know Gersbach for a, for a lot of this. I mean, just the way that he taught me how to 
I think how he taught me to take biology and take biological systems and say, that's not good enough for me. I want to make this better. I want to do this differently. So I, I was just so captivated by the ideas of, you know, making proteins from scratch and designing new proteins that have never existed that we can you know do on our own. And I think that's what the engineering side of it really comes in for me is if you can't find it, you build it. And so that, and, and I found the most excitement for me was to build it in a, you know, build it in a test tube, build it in a little Eppendorf tube, build it, you know, test it in cells in a dish. So, I mean, ever since that experience, and I, I had the whole thoughts too, that I was going to go do a mathematical modeling kind of project. And, and I, we tried one little thing and it didn't really work out that well. Um, I just really like being in the, uh, I like being in the lab that kind of, there's a tinkering that you can do with wet lab that I don't think we actually teach enough of. I think people in general are very scared of working with cells and proteins and enzymes. And I, I don't think of them as any different as a Lego or as a breadboard or as just kind of, you know, resistors and capacitors in the little drawer in the pod. I don't think of them as any different. I just think that we have to change our framing in terms of how we engineer biology and why, you know, why can't we do the exact same rewiring of cells the way that you would on the breadboard to try out different things and see what you get as an output. So I think that mentality that I learned from Dr. Gersbach and through all my other courses, especially as also as a grad student, uh, that really pushed me in that direction to say that, you know, the, you know, I have a toolbox. My toolbox is all of the DNA of the world. My toolbox is all of these characterized parts and pieces um, and doing more of that kind of work. So Ultimately, I, I really enjoyed that experience in his lab. And, you know, I, I keep my little math things on the side that I love, you know, I love doing and, and you know, that, which has helped me with, I think, teaching, especially in an engineering department, where I really want for you all to have very strong mathematical foundations, since it gets you really far. Uh, whether you whether you like doing the integrals and the differential equations or not is one thing, but I think if you have that strong knowledge, it gets you can it can get you really far in your, uh, you know, in your knowledge and in your ability to do engineering. Yeah, as someone who um, is a BME major but does research in a molecular biology lab, that's like a really interesting perspective. I think like you know, I guess not a lot of BMEs like really get that experience of working in wet lab unless you take these courses like three or. 307. I don't know if that 307 has a lab, but there's some advanced electives now that have that wet lab component, like genome engineering, which I know is taught by Dr. Gershbach. Yeah. Oh, and also, this perspective is like really interesting to me as someone who kind of has sh shied away from the wet lab because I like the tinkering that I, that I like thought only existed in um, a more electrical engineering perspective. But hearing you talk about it this way really makes me, I guess, more interested just from that perspective. And I, I think it has to be. I, I, I really, you know, I'm I, I would be remiss if I didn't see ways that we can, you know, work with the current BME, you know, education tracks to say, why can't you tinker with biology the same way that you would in, say, ECE 110 or in the pod? I think that there are ways to do it. Um, it, it it's, a, it's, a, it's tough. I mean, I think there's definitely, there's nothing wrong with being a little bit afraid of biology, I guess. I mean, there are definitely some things that are dangerous with biology that we have to be very, you know, cautious and careful of, but it's no different. Then being in a machine shop, you also have to be very careful with the tools that you have in your machine shop. Uh, we don't want there to be any issues with, you know, there either. So I think that that approach is something that, you know, it takes a little bit of work to really to grow and develop. But I, I there's been a lot of really strong advances over the past, you know, couple of decades to say, 
let's put these things together and see what happens and, and that it won't, you know, that it's, it's fun to see, you know, and it's a similar thing with, you know, things don't always work in engineering. Things don't always work in the wet lab. Things don't always work in the dry lab. Things don't always work with your code. I mean, we have to struggle and part of our education is struggling to get results. So I don't think there should be any difference with, you know, being in the wet lab or being, you know, on a breadboard. Yeah. And once you sort of, you know, once you completed your graduate work in this area, sort of a more wet lab PhD, why did you choose to come back to Duke? Um, was that like a conscious decision to, you know, come back to where you did your undergrad or did that just happen sort of more naturally? Um, I, I would, I wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't, I'm not going to lie and say that I'd never, I'm not going to lie and say that I wanted, I wanted to come back to Duke. I, I, I did, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I actively sought it out. Like immediately the first time I was very fortunate that one of my uh, lecturers at Stanford that I was working and we, we were, we uh, created a class together to train TAs. Uh, I was just very fortunate that he forwarded me an email uh, asking to search for, you know, teaching faculty at Duke in the BME department. He asked me, would you be interested in going back to Duke to teach? And, you know, that idea had always been the back of my head of like, oh God, I really would love to go back to Duke. I really would enjoy that. So when the, I, I would, I, I can't, I can't say that I was actively like, I must come back to Duke. But when that opportunity came, it was like, oh, no, 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 I, I, I want to be back at Duke. And part of it, I think, was because there were experiences that I had as an undergrad that I wanted to embrace and I wanted to be a part of. But I also wanted to see that the department grow and, you know, something with my experiences with the wet lab, I think, you know, trying to create education directives around things in the wet lab, I think be really powerful. Um, but I also really, I, I think, I believe in this department. I believe in what we're doing in BME to train you all at the undergrad, the grad student, the postdoc, the staff, all these levels. I really believe in what we were, what we are doing. And I, I think it's important to find an industry or to find a, you know, place to work that you truly believe in what they do and that you believe in their mission and Duke was a place that I think took me somewhere, took me to a direction that I never would have ever thought of. I mean, that privilege of being at Duke, especially, you know, and I, I really do, you know, think a lot about first generation students be having be being one myself that Duke did open up my eyes to so many opportunities and gave me these chances. And I wanted to give back to that same school. And I wanted to give back to those students that were maybe in my same or are in my same shoes, you know, today. And say, you know, there are opportunities that you don't even know about. There are opportunities that I don't even know about. But let's find those together. And I found that being on this side of the classroom at Duke, which I really just enjoyed being there, or being here, I guess. It's well there. I guess it's it's down the it's down the street, I guess. I'm, you know, not not in my office on campus, but um that to me was so important. Uh and it gave me that sense of purpose that I think. Uh, I think that you should have, you know, in choosing a career for you. That's so great to hear you talk about your job in Duke with such passion and buy-in. It really, like, you can really tell you're like you have such a strong personal connection, which is which is awesome. Can you can you tell me a little bit more about your role as a lecturer? That's a very unique position I, I feel in the in academia in the university setting. Um, what what is your what are your responsibilities as a lecturer? Yeah, so I I yeah uh, you know, I think there's there certainly is the you know the standard you know standard things you know I'm 
I will be, I teach, uh, two classes a semester this, this year with COVID it's been a little bit funky, you know, nothing is normal. So we just kind of, we, we brush off this year for normalcy and we hope that next year we get more normal. So, um, I teach, uh, two courses, uh, each semester and, you know, right now we're still trying to figure out what are those courses all going to be. You know, I think 260 is right now kind of my, my home spot. I really like teaching 260, but there are so many other courses that I'd love to make myself. Other courses that I think in the department we'd love to see happen. Um, but this semester, I've actually had the nice privilege of working in the teaching lab and sort of acting as sort of a lab instructor for a few different courses. Um, and that's really great to, you know, see what's going on in the, in the lab uh, the equipment, the the people, seeing what what we have available to students, and what can we do to make your experiences better as a uh, you know as a student in that lab. So I've been fortunate to be able to work there for this semester, uh, which I will say uh, is is a lot of work, you know. And I really I can't. I would you know Maggie and Christine down in the teaching lab have just been, and, and of course Matt Brown, which you all have had on the pod. Um, you know, they are superstars. I mean, they are just absolute superstars to, you know, make these courses and make your education experiences so wonderful. So, you know, I, I think that that is uh, a great opportunity. And I think it's what being an engineer is about here at Duke is, you know, doing this kind of work. So it's actually really nice to be down there also because I am getting to do some wet lab stuff again and having been away from it for about a year at this point, like, it's kind of fun to be down there, you know, growing up my own cells and uh, working with my own, you know, doing doing the dishes. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure everyone loves doing dishes <laughs> in their wet lab room. You can probably say to that for sure. You know, yeah. racking racking the pipette tips and all that kind of stuff. You know, I that's my favorite part. How do you exactly. know? Exactly, <laughs> I, I love getting to do that again. So um, I'm really enjoying that part. Uh, but I think the other parts as well. Uh, what I what I would also say, I think that I'm very fortunate here with Duke that. Uh, I don't feel as though I'm limited in what I can do as a member of the faculty. So I'm also serving on the uh, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Community Committee within Pratt, um, which I think is just such an important initiative that we undertake as part of, you know, our role as educators, as role as students, and our role as a university to you know, really reflect and look at what we can do, or what what we can do, but what we need to do to advance uh, racial equity on um, in the engineering school. How do we advance uh, the? How do we just make this community equitable, inclusive, and seeing that seeing that and being a part of it is so important. And I want my role as a faculty member to you know, I love teaching you all. That's, uh, that's what gets me up in the morning. What's is what makes me at eight 30 in my sweatpants, get in front of the camera to teach <laughs> you all on zoom. But I want to see this, you know, I want to see these things change for every student every year, you know, and even those that aren't even that are still 10, 15 years away from being at Duke. That's what I want to see change. So that's been a really uh, important part of my time here at Duke so far. Yeah, given these different areas of impact that you really want to have, um, what are your, you're, you know, you're probably the youngest uh, faculty member we've had on our podcast for sure. What are your, knowing what you know now, what are your aspirations for your career? And, you know, wh- what would you define as success? And I guess 
what is like a tangible goal that you have right now? You know, I, I, I'm always very curious to sort of get into the minds of faculty members. And I think it's really unique to speak to someone who is in your position, who is sort of on the early end of your career. Um, so the first question of, you know, where do I see my career going? I'm not, I'll, I'll answer that one last, but what do I define? What do I define as success for my career? What I define as success is growing and fostering Duke biomedical engineering students and hopefully students beyond BME at Duke, but you know, at least given right now that I'm mostly working with BME students, what I define as success is, is seeing you all enter the world as motivated, thoughtful, uh, aware uh, engineers that are willing to tackle problems that we are facing or will face. Uh, I, I view success as having you all find careers that give you meaning and value uh, for, for, you know, you, for you. I, I think that uh, there's no, I, I just want to see that happen. I, I think it's so easy to, uh, you know, it, it's not for the award. It's not for the, you know, it's really just about you all being the best versions of yourself and, and equipping you with the tool, the toolkit and the the know the knowledge of just what is out there in the world, and I we oh I, I was talking to some other students uh, the other day that you know we're we're learning these things you know in two sixty that are you know a little bit mundane mass balance analysis you know it's not the most exciting thing of mass in equals mass out, and and I tell them that this is a foundational technique, and I'm going to teach you some other things throughout this course that are sort of big and upcoming right now. But the career that you undertake and the career that you choose and probably in three, four or five years doesn't even exist yet. Ten years ago, we were not talking about CRISPR. There were probably 10 people on this planet that were talking about CRISPR-Cas9. In the year 2021, you can't walk, you can't get out of a talk without somebody saying that they did a CRISPR-Cas9 experiment. We don't train you to know what's going on right now. We train you for what your world is going to be and preparing you with all of those tools. So what I view as success is not that you know what Cas9 is right now. I don't, I don't view success as you knowing how to solve this differential equation for Michaelis Menten, you know, enzyme velocity. What I care about is equipping you with that knowledge and that framework so that in five years when we discover the next CRISPR you're ready for it. That's what I view as success. In terms of what my in terms of what my future career is, I, I, I that's a tough question. It's a really hard question. I you know I I I, I am young and there's a lot there's a lot that could happen. You know it's hard. I'm I am somebody that really you know I love teaching and I I view my career as always being an educator. I just, I know that's the kind of person that I am is educating and being in the room, but I don't know what capacity is going to be. You know, I I think it it might be in front of the classroom for the next many years. It might be behind the scenes, you know, it might be traveling the world and and teaching others. I don't know. And that's such a tough question that, but I, 
whatever it is, I know it's going to be teaching others because that's where I find, uh, where I, well, I think at least where I find that I have a strong impact. That's incredible. And I, I'm sure you do. You sound so passionate about what you do and that's, that's so great to hear. Do you ever get nervous when you teach or when, when you first started at Duke? Um, did you, <laughs> did you get nervous when you started teaching classes? Oh yes. I mean, I, I think I, I think I still get nervous every now and then. I, I finally, I think I've gotten comfortable. I think the first day when that first day, especially because it was on Zoom too. I mean, maybe I'll be more, I think I'll be more nervous when we get back to in-person teaching. Because um, then you see everybody's faces and they're all staring at you. At least with Zoom, it's kind of like, you know, certain certain ratio. Um, I I do and I don't. I think there are always topics that I'm always like, you know, a little bit like making sure that I say the right thing at the right time. So there's a timing element, I think, to a lot of teaching. Can I get to the aha moment in time? So I'm a little nervous with some of those moments that I, you know, present everything in the best way possible. But I feel really comfortable right now in this position. I really do. I really feel like I there's something about there's a comfort. There's a comfort in doing what you enjoy. And I really enjoy this to share this. And, you know, and I also am very, I'm very open and honest with the mistakes that I will make. I mean, I can definitely say that I have technology issues every now and then. And I'm just very upfront in saying there is going to be technology issues and I am really sorry. Or when I'm working a problem out on my iPad, you know, sharing the screen and everything, and I write down the wrong numbers and I do the wrong math and I just kind of call it like I see it and I say, that was a mistake. We're going to fix it and we're going to keep going. Because I think that hopefully it, it shows you all that you can make those same mistakes too. Uh, so I think there's a comfort in that. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm like perfectly like, you know, calm and collected. But I think that I'm I'm getting a lot better with sort of maintaining those nerves. But the first day especially, I mean, that was a big day. That was a really big day to, you know, turn the camera on see all these faces looking at you and and that's you know they were the first students that got to you know go through the the experience of you know me teaching yeah and i it, it must be so weird to like be on the other side I can only imagine. Like, I know, like, when I have to give, like, a presentation for class, I'm, like, my heart's, like, beating really fast, and I can only imagine going to work and doing that every day, essentially. But you get really comfortable with it, and again, it's because you really in enjoy it. I mean, I, um, I enjoy presenting. I enjoy kind of that, I enjoy talking. I enjoy communicating, you know, with, with a lot of this stuff, and so that, I think, is a comfort. You know, if it's the if it's the first time that I'm ever teaching something, I'll definitely be a little bit nervous because it's kind of like, well, I think I know it. I mean, I was studying it. I was doing my practice problems to make sure that I'm fully ready for this, but you never know. But I, but I, th I find that the open and honest communication with students saying, I made a mistake or saying even, this isn't my favorite topic of this course, but it's, it is important. It's just not my favorite. I think say, saying that is, is really, you know, really important as well. Earlier, you also mentioned another role that you have on campus. You're the advisor for the uh, iGEM team. Yes. How did you get involved with that? And I think that's like a really interesting thing. Can you sort of tell 
tell us like what synthetic biology exactly is and what the goal is of the team like on, on a really broad level i don't think i can tell you what synthetic biology is because i don't <laughs> even think i know what synthetic biology is i don't think anybody <laughs> in this field knows what synthetic biology is it's it's a it's a term that we that we throw around we're still trying to figure out what it means because it changes i mean what we can and can't do with biology to make new systems, it, it's, it changes every second at this point. So uh, it's a hard question to answer. Um, so how did I get involved with iGEM? So I actually, Joe, uh, I was part of the Duke iGEM team in 2013. Um, and thankfully, due to a lot of my exposures with Dr. Gerspach's lab, I learned about some of the ideas of synthetic biology and the iGEM project in terms of having undergraduate students uh, and then more recently having high school students and uh, even uh, older, you know, more graduate students uh, trying to solve different problems using, you know, bioengineering and saying that, again, that kind of what I said earlier with just, you know, if you can't if you can't find what it is to fix the problem, just make it yourself. I think that synthetic biology and iGEM, the international genetically engineered machine, we're making what we call genetically engineered machines, you know, which is a very bloated term, right? You know, what does that mean? And I think it's just basically crafting biology to do what you want for it to do. So I'm very fortunate that there are students here at Duke that are really interested in that kind of tinkering and saying, we want to solve a particular problem and we think that biology is the best tool to do it. What are the, you know, what are the proteins out there that we can study? What are the ways that we can sense, you know, pollutants in water and having bacteria or any other kind of microorganism fight off that pollution? There is a bunch of projects that have been really successful over the past almost 20 years at this point since the sort of the inception of the iGEM uh, competition. But what I really enjoy about iGEM is just a chance for students to do that kind of tinkering in the lab and saying that, what we're going to build and what we're going to design from DNA parts and put them into you know, bacteria or put them into uh, mammalian cell cultures, what we might design might not even work. And that's okay. It's part of learning. It's part of designing. And it's part of understanding better what we do in these types of systems. So I'm really excited to be on the uh, faculty side and advising the team because I just really enjoy seeing the excitement when we are doing something as simple as maybe even a PCR and having students do their first PCR is, is really exciting to me because it's, you know, I think you learn about these things in the book. You learn that DNA is this really important thing. That's my number one lesson is that DNA is important. And then when you actually get to, uh, you know, make your own DNA, it kind of has a whole new meaning behind it when, uh, you know, it's no longer just this thing inside of cells. It's actually, this, you know, thing that we can manipulate and edit and change and see what happens with it. I know you mentioned it when you were discussing your kind of philosophy and outlook on teaching is you're, you're teaching us to solve the problems of five, ten years from now. Where do you see the field of synthetic biology going in the next ten years, let's say? <sighs> That's another hard question because I don't even think we know what it's <laughs> going to be like next year. Um, I think that, right, one of the things that I'm really excited for and something that I'm hoping to kind of craft with within sort of my role as both, you know, teaching as well as you know, a little bit of side kind of things in the teaching lab as well. I'm really interested in what we call cell-free biology. And instead of saying we got to put this into cells and see how it works, my philosophy is what if we don't even need the cell? 
there's a lot of really great work coming out of many uh, institutions across the uh, world about how to create, you know, cell-free biological systems that allow us to do this tinkering without even the danger of maybe an E. coli cell. Maybe we just need some water to make, you know, make this work. Maybe we just need some DNA to throw into this little cell-free mixture and see what that DNA is going to do without even needing a cell. That's what I'm really interested in right now. I also think it creates a very safe environment for students to work with biology. And I also think it's a very, um, it can also work for uh, areas with limited or low resources because you don't even need major equipment to grow you know, bacteria or grow cells. You just need maybe a fridge is maybe all you need. And even that you don't even need because we've got some really strong advances in freeze drying to uh, make these, you know, readily accessible. So I think there's a really strong education directive with this, as well as a research directive to say, no longer do we need to be limited by what cells give us. We can do it even without that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Cell-free biology. I think, like, I think that definitely opens up the possibilities in terms of like the equipment you need, right? Because, you, you know, for like cells, you need like a tissue culture if you're working with mammalian cells, different things like that. But yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have, um, there's a great company um, that makes a lot of like, uh, kind of almost like 3D printed stuff for the, uh, for bio labs. I don't have my stuff here. It's over in the teaching lab right now, but I actually, I have my own little uh, personal PCR thermocycler uh, and my own little personal wow. uh, gel box. Uh, <laughs> not, not that I'm doing experiments at home. I don't have time for that anymore. Um, but I, you know, <laughs> anymore, <laughs> but having it, but having the equipment, I think is really cool, but also something that I want to share with other, you know, I want to take this, I want to take this show on the road one day, hopefully when we can be in person and show to, you know, show five-year-olds that they can do biology as well. I can show anybody that they can do biology. For all of our listeners, what advice would you have for someone? I know it's always a hard, this is always a hard question to ask because there's such a wide variety of people you know, who their, who advice can apply to, but what advice would you give to like an incoming or current engineering student who may not know what they want to do and is trying to figure it out? Work up on your math. Cause I'm going to ask you a lot of math <laughs> questions in my course. No, I mean, that, that, that's, that's probably good practical advice, I suppose. Um, I think my biggest thing, um, my biggest piece of advice that I would, sh- I share a lot, um, is don't limit yourself. I I find a lot with students, you know, the biggest thing right now is that everybody wants to do a CRISPR project. Everybody wants to do some, you know, that's, that's all I, I hear students that are really interested in doing CRISPR stuff. But as I've said, I'm not training you to do CRISPR experiments. I mean, I will train you to do CRISPR experiments. That's good knowledge to have. But that's not what I want for you to ultimately walk away with is knowing how to do that. I want for you to walk away in five years from now, when somebody says we've discovered the next thing and that you're ready to pounce on the opportunity. So I tell students a lot that when you limit yourself to only, you know, one field of work that you have to be in and nothing else will do, you close so many doors and so many opportunities. When Duke itself is just one giant opportunity filled with, you know, thousands of little tiny ones. So I, I really tell students just to, you know, it doesn't matter what your research you're doing. You're passionate about wanting to do this kind of, you know, discover things for your own eyes and your own, you know, 
your own experiences. Like that matters more than saying I did a CRISPR experiment. It might you might learn that you will love something about, you know, cardiac biology, but you never would have thought about it until you just randomly emailed somebody saying, I'm interested in this kind of, you know, stuff. Like what, you know, can you offer? Um, I think that people, and that's one of the things that I really struggle with is uh, showing you, this is not, you're not, these four years here are not supposed to be learning XYZ skill is meant to broaden your horizons and, and, sh- and expose you to so many things. So uh, don't limit yourself. But I would also even go to say that that goes with all the experiences that you have. I mean, I was fortunate in my time at, at Duke that I got involved in you know, stuff like the Jeopardy and stuff like the iGem. I also did acting things as well. And that I think led me to just, you know, I think really enjoy being in front of people, you know, on, on a stage like that and, and learning those kinds of, you know, learning that method of communication, a different form of communication that you maybe wouldn't get just by doing a 10 minute presentation with PowerPoint. Um, but that's, you know, trying those different kinds of things. That That's how I got into curling. That's how I got into, you know, cooking and baking. That's how I got into, uh, you know, being involved with equity and, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts was being curious and just saying, I want the next thing. I want more. I want to try something different. That's my biggest piece of advice right now. That's awesome. That That's definitely something as I've been reflecting on my Duke career, my time here, that I've realized is just like so important and, and all the best opportunities really come out of doing exactly as you said. So thank you for that. Uh, as we wrap up, there are some two kind of random questions that we ask all of our guests. The first one is um, if you have any coffee or tea drinking habits, and if so, what they are. So um, I, my coffee drinking habits, I have the exact same coffee every morning. It is a cold brew. Uh, it is a it's a cold brew coffee. It's two pumps of sugar-free vanilla bean syrup. It's cold brew concentrate, so it's like half the cup is, co- is cold brew, the other half's water with some French vanilla creamer. Um, that's my, that's my like coffee habit, and I, I have to have that every morning. My students are very acutely aware that I will always, I pause to have them answer a question and I'm very patient when I wait for their answer. So I just kind of sit there sipping my coffee, just waiting for the answer. And sometimes they catch on. Sometimes I'm just kind of, I just keep drinking my coffee. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah. And the last question is, um, what's the last book you read or what's a book that you could, you would recommend? Oh man. Um, the last book that I read is a book by Bell Hooks called Teaching to Transgress. It is a book that really focuses on a, uh, well, I, I mean, a, a black woman's career in college education and how the struggles that she faced in, you know, making her name as an education leader. She, uh, and, and the, you know, for lack of a better word, the racist experiences that she had as a college educator and still experiences that is not a unique experience to, you know, many other, uh, you know, of my black colleagues that deal with these, you know, issues, but also saying that teaching is a transgressive episode. Teaching is meant to 
change the way, you know, change your views, to change how you view the world and to acknowledge that there are things that we need to do better in teaching and education. And so that's the last book that I, um, that I read uh, is, is that I think the other last book that I read is Bioengineering Fundamentals by Dr. Ryan Satterback. <laughs> well, Dr. Kim, thank you so much for um, being a guest on After Office Hours. Really appreciated it. And I really love the conversation. Thanks for having me. Wow, what a great episode. Yeah, I love that story about how he, um, first of all, he has his own um, home re- uh, thermocycler. Like a- yeah, that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine him like in his kitchen getting reagent inside of his fridge or freezer, <laughs> throwing it in the thermocycler. It's pretty funny. You know, I, I think I remember uh, one of my friends last semester, they were in like this microbio class and the TAs like shipped out reagents to like um, people's houses, you know, of course the safe oh, ones, during, but during COVID. yeah, during COVID. So um, I didn't, you know, you know, I think, I think Dr. Kim had that kit before the pandemic started, but that's super interesting. No, but I love his vision too. I can just imagine him traveling the world with his thermocycler and then <laughs> t- teaching the world about biology. Yes. While on weekends, um, winning winning curling competitions <laughs> yes. needless to say this was an incredibly interesting episode dr kim is an incredibly interesting and wonderful person and we hope you guys enjoyed yeah thanks so much um you can follow us as usual on instagram at after double underscore office hours or on spotify google podcasts or apple podcasts at after office hours and one more thing we would love to hear your feedback so rate us on apple podcasts I don't know how you can rate things on Spotify. Maybe you can't. I don't know. Send us a message on Instagram. Like our pictures. We want to hear from you. Thanks again for watching, and we will see you next time. Catch you on the flip side.